turn for our reading to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, and we read together Exodus chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. But all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. The Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. Though the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water, because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Appearances, we know, can be very deceptive. What seems to be the case can turn out to be very far from the truth. That could be true, of course, on the level of individual circumstances. Also true of much bigger events, even 
national issues and international affairs, how often commentators and experts get it wrong. Maybe they misread the signs or there's information they uh, didn't have access to. And anyone looking at the Israelites in Egypt would have thought here are people really without a future. They're slaves. The conditions of their slavery are becoming heavier and heavier. Uh, They have no resources of their own. They're helpless victims. Uh, And so really there is no future ahead of them, but probably in the end, extinction. And yet the Lord has a very different plan for them. Appearances with regard to the Israelites indeed were very deceptive. And so we turn this evening to Exodus 7, looking at the whole of this chapter, recalling this study, God's mighty hand. God's mighty hand, because that is what we see working here in this chapter. First of all, as we Uh, look at the events that are recorded here, we need to think about the great conflict. The great conflict. In the account of the deliverance from Egypt that Israel experienced, we're just beginning uh, that account, we see a, a fundamental issue. We've touched on it before But I think it is important here at this point, as the plagues uh, begin to fall in Egypt, uh, that we take a moment to remind ourselves that the fundamental issue here is spiritual and it's religious. Everything else is secondary. You can read uh, scholars and experts who uh, will talk about the events of Israel leaving Egypt and terms of sociology and the politics of the day and all sorts of factors that may have played a part. The fundamental issue is spiritual. And if we miss that, we've really missed what is happening here. We've certainly missed what God is doing. Notice how events are described. The words, the language is always important. We believe, of course, the words are God-given. Regarding Moses, God uh, says in the very first verse, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. What does that mean? Well, it means uh, that the Lord has given Moses authority, divine authority as the spokesman of the Lord. The focus is the Lord in all of this. The, The chief actor is not Moses or Pharaoh or the Israelites, It's God. We need to understand what God is doing. And you see a God who, as always, is sovereign in this situation. It appears that his people are helpless, but God isn't helpless. God is sovereign. And he can say uh, in verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. It's God who is acting and working out his purpose. His will is being carried out in detail. And as the signs and the wonders are described, as the plagues will be listed in the following chapters, it is 
the Lord who is at work. It's the Lord who's demonstrating his power over the creation and his miraculous signs and wonders. God is working. It's not anything in Moses or uh, in the, the staff that, that he uses to, to strike the, the, the Nile, for example. It's God's power. It's God who is working. Moses is simply a mouthpiece and an intermediary. But God is working. And in particular, you see that God's actions are redemptive. God is moving to deliver his people from bondage. That's the heart of the matter. That's what he said he would do. And that is what he is working out in these events. He is going to redeem them, as he puts it in verse 4, with mighty acts of judgment. He says, I will bring out my divisions. I think that is a sense of an ordered departure. They don't go out as a rabble. There's an order as God takes them out, my people, the Israelites. And all of this, of course, is God acting to keep his promises. The promise that he made way back with Abraham, that he would give the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants as a possession. The provisions in God's covenant with his people, he will be their God, they will be his people. Part of that is giving them a land to live in. And God's promised that, and the promise has, as it were, sat there for centuries. And now God is going to keep that promise. None of his words will fail. He will give them the land and he will take them as his covenant people. I will be your God, you will be my people. We'll find that worked out all the way through the rest of Scripture. The result of all of this, as God acts in these powerful ways, and as he sends the signs and the wonders, the result, verse 5, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. He's not saying the Egyptians will necessarily believe in him or will worship him. Uh, There were some, as the record shows us, who appeared to have some kind of faith in the God of Israel. But most of them, of course, didn't. But they're going to be left without excuse. There will be abundant evidence forcefully brought to them to show the power and the authority of the Lord as the only true God. And so it is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual battle. And we need to see this battle in Egypt as part of the big picture of what God is working out in the course of history. To see where this fits into God's plan and purpose. Because what we read about in these chapters, the account of the plagues in Egypt, is another round in a cosmic battle. A battle that will go on through human history. Be recorded in the Old Testament, on into the New, and right until the Lord returns. There is a war going on. 
And this is one of the stages in that war. When did the war begin? It began in the Garden of Eden. It began when man fell and God responded both in judgment and in grace. When the Lord said in his sentence on the serpent, on Satan, in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And in a certain sense, that is perhaps one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Because there God tells Satan and he tells us that there is going to be an ongoing battle, a war. A war between two camps, Satan and all those who serve him. And that's us by nature. That's where we start out as part of the seed of the serpent. The battle between them and the seed of the woman. Those who, by God's grace, share in the faith of the woman. Because the scriptures indicate that Adam and Eve did believe God's promise of grace and salvation. And so you have the seed of the serpent, where we all start out, by nature, and the seed of the woman where we find ourselves when God and his grace saves us. And there's a spiritual war going on constantly. And what we have here in Exodus and these events in Egypt is one stage in that battle. Because that promise in Genesis 3.15 points us forward to a final combat. We have read in history and events where rather than two armies fighting, they choose a champion each. It was David and Goliath, of course, was an example of that in the Bible. And the two champions represent their own sides and they fight and determine the outcome of the war. And Genesis 3.15 speaks about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent while his own heel is struck by the serpent. And in view is single combat. The seed of the woman who ultimately the Bible shows us is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, who at the cross engaged in warfare with Satan and there won the victory. He crushed the head of the serpent at a cost. The striking of the heel by the serpent pictures the death that Christ suffered. And there is the victory that he has won in this battle that began in the Garden of Eden. At a high cost, the cost of suffering and death, The Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, provides victory and deliverance and salvation. And so really Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel verse. Isn't it fascinating that the first gospel verse should be before Adam and Eve had left the Garden of Eden and God promised salvation. 
And that warfare is going on in Egypt because Pharaoh opposing God and resisting the call of God to let Israel go free. Pharaoh represents the seed of the serpent. That's the side of the war on which Pharaoh's to be found. Pharaoh regarded as a god in Egypt, who sets himself against the Lord, the only true God. And so what we have in these chapters is the confrontation of spiritual powers. The Lord and the representative of the seed of the serpent, Pharaoh. And the result will show us who is God. Is it Pharaoh? Is it the Lord? Who rules in Egypt? Is it Pharaoh? Or is it the Lord? This is one more round in the battle that one day will reach the cross at Calvary where Christ, the seed of the woman, wins the victory and provides eternal life for his people. So it's important for us to see where these chapters fit into the big picture of God's plan of salvation. And the first gospel promise in the Garden of Eden, right through to the cross of Calvary, where Christ wins the ultimate victory. And here is one of the skirmishes in the battle. Pharaoh sets himself against the Lord, and two kingdoms clash. It's not simply Egypt and the Israelites. It's the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of the Lord. That's the big picture. That's where these chapters fit in. The great conflict. But then as we look specifically at what's recorded here, we think secondly of the first clashes. Battles joined. What happens? Well, in Exodus 7, we see two clashes in this warfare. The first is the episode of Aaron's rod. The staff thrown down when Pharaoh demands a miracle. Perform a miracle, he says in verse 9. Aaron throws down the staff. It became a snake, we are told, exactly as the Lord had said. No ifs and buts, no question about it. The Lord said, this will happen, and it happened. And this, of course, is an authenticating sign as far as the messengers of God are concerned and the message that they brought. Is it the truth? Are these really God's messengers? Well, there's the snake that proves it, the miracle that God had given to authenticate their task and their message. The choice of a snake isn't random. We've mentioned this before, but again, it merits underlining. In Egypt, snakes were revered, as many animals were, cats and other creatures. But snakes were revered as manifestations of the divine, of the gods. Uh, And again, it was no coincidence uh, that on the headdress that the Pharaoh wore, there was a cobra. And that was a symbol of his authority, a sign of Pharaoh's rule. 
And so the sign that God chooses, the rod turned into a snake, demonstrates God's authority over snakes, over the whole of his creation, and over the gods of Egypt that snakes were thought to represent. That's the deeper level in the sign. It's not simply God can control snakes, but God is supreme over all the deities of Egypt, anything and anyone that the Egyptians worship. The sign really is a gesture of defiance. God has chosen the snake deliberately to make this point that he is in control. But then, of course, we read in verse 11, the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. What they did and how they did it is a good question. Commentators differ equally Bible-believing commentators of different conclusions. Some of them think it was simply the kind of stage conjuring trick uh, that maybe we see on TV or certainly used to because there are records of uh, Egyptians who were able by uh, grasping snakes at a certain point at the back of the neck were able to, to hypnotize them so that they were rigid. And the idea then is, well, they had these rigid hypnotized snakes and they threw them down and, of course, they woke up and started slithering around. And that was what the magicians did. Others would suggest that what, in fact, we are witnessing here is a manifestation of demonic power. I don't think in principle, biblically, there's any reason why that may not have been the case. We read in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, about how the Antichrist will come with all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Satan is allowed a measure of power, thankfully allowed by God, who remains sovereign. And it may be that, to a limited degree, these Egyptians were able to counterfeit what Moses and Aaron did. And certainly the record seems to suggest that the transformation of rod to snake really did happen. You can come to your own conclusions, but it does appear that they, yes, in a limited way, were able to repeat what had been done by Moses and Aaron. But, of course, verse 12, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So in the end, God wins. We'll come back to that in due course. And yet in the face of all of what was happening, Pharaoh is unmoved. His heart became hard. He remains rebellious. He is not receptive to the message or to the signs that authenticated it. He's hard. He remains in rebellion. So that is the first of these confrontations. First clash. And then the second begins the plagues, the famous plagues of Egypt. And we've the record of the first plague here in Exodus 7. God says, I will strike the water of the Nile 
and it will be changed into blood. Verse 17. Uh, Indeed, not just the Nile. You read on and it appears most of the water in Egypt was turned to blood. Uh, There must have been some that wasn't because the magicians were able to turn water into blood. They still had some. Uh, And the groundwater uh, appears still to be available when they dig down to try and get something to drink. But most of the water in Egypt will be turned to blood. And that is exactly what happens. Whatever God says is what takes place. And a very public sign. Again, it's not random. It's not simply one among a a collection of any and every sort of sign that God might have done. They're chosen very specifically. The sign with the rod turning to a snake related to one of the gods of Egypt. And similarly here, the Nile, the river that gave life to Egypt. They were utterly dependent on the Nile flooding every year and leaving fertile silt in which the crops could be planted. If the Nile didn't flood, Egypt starved. And so the Nile was sacred. The Nile was venerated as a god. There were several deities that the Egyptians worshipped in connection with the river Nile. It was the giver of life. They were dependent upon it. It's not surprising that in their spiritual darkness they would worship the river and believe it really was a manifestation of the gods. And you see what God is doing. He's making something that was a source of life into a source of death. The fish die. The people can scarcely find anything to drink. It's a clear blow against the gods of Egypt, as every one of the plagues will be. As if God selects one deity after another and demonstrates very visibly and publicly, this God is useless. This God can do nothing for you. The Lord is in control. And when he turns the Nile and the waters of Egypt to blood, God is demonstrating the powerlessness of the gods of Egypt. Then again, verse 22, the Egyptian magicians did the same things. Again, was it a trick? Was it a satanic sign? We can't be sure. But again, the devil is granted a degree of power. But once again, Pharaoh's heart became hard. He did not take even this to heart we're told. So he becomes harder and harder. God is sending the plagues as tokens of his judgment. That's the language uh, that he used in speaking uh, to Moses in verse 4. I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my people. Judgment. They are tokens of God's judgment. And in the plagues Surely we have a foretaste of God's judgment that one day will come upon all the unrepentant on the earth. The plagues described in Revelation 16, for example. The seven bowls of God's wrath. If anybody is inclined to write off 
Exodus is primitive. The sort of thing we should have grown out of in the 21st century. The New Testament tells us a day is coming when God will pour out his wrath in powerful ways. And the plagues in Egypt will be just a little sample of what God will pour out on rebels and on the unrepentant. And apart from God's grace, we're told in Revelation, sinners will refuse to listen. They still do. And they did in Egypt. Only the grace of God can soften the heart. And the heart of the sinner is hard. The heart of Pharaoh was hard and hardening as God demonstrated his power and his authority. God is at work. So we see worked out in the course of Exodus 7, the big picture, the great conflict. We see the first clashes in the sign of Aaron's rod and the first of the plagues. And then finally we see the complete victory. The complete victory. Perhaps you think, how can you describe the events of Exodus 7 as a victory? After all, didn't the Egyptian magicians duplicate the Lord's signs? Didn't they do the same things that Moses and Aaron did? How can you say then this represents a victory for the Lord? Surely at best, all that we see here is that the Lord and the gods of Egypt are well balanced are the first rounds not a draw? The Lord gives one sign, the Egyptians duplicate it. How can you describe that as a victory? Is that not just wishful thinking? But it isn't. If you look closely at what is recorded, notice first of all that it's the Lord who sets the agenda each time. It's the Lord who says, This will be the sign. That will be the sign. The Lord chooses the battleground on every occasion. He decides where the battle will be conducted. He says it will be turning the water into blood. Then he says it will be the frogs, then the gnats, and so on, down through the sequence. It's the Lord who decrees where the battle will be fought. What will the issue be? The Egyptians have no choice. All they can do is react or try to react. But it's the Lord who decides what the contest will be. And the best that the Egyptian magicians can do is respond to the Lord's agenda. There's never a case where the Lord says, this is the plague I will send And the Egyptians say, no, something different will happen. The Lord is sovereign. Notice also that before very long, the Egyptian magicians will not be able to duplicate the signs. Uh, They can do it with the staff becoming a snake in verse 12. 
They can do it with the water turned to blood in verse 22. They can even do it with the frogs in chapter 8 and verse 7. But they've reached their limit. That's the last of the plagues that they can duplicate. The sign of Aaron's staff and the first two plagues after that, they fail. From the gnats onward, the Egyptians can't do a thing. They have reached what we know is a God-ordained limit. God has permitted, we believe it is a satanic sign, God has permitted the turning of the water into blood and the sending of the frogs to be duplicated. After that, the Lord simply says, that's it. And there's nothing the Egyptians can do about it. They have reached their limit and God has set the limit. So that also underlines how this can be thought of as a victory. Because the Lord sets the limits that his opponents can reach. And beyond that, they are utterly helpless. And notice too, with regard to those initial clashes, yes, the Egyptian magicians can turn their staffs into snakes, but Aaron's staff, Aaron's snake, swallows them up demonstration of who holds the ultimate power. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who gives a sign that consumes the enemy's efforts to duplicate the sign. And notice too that all that the Egyptians can do is duplicate the plague. They cannot undo it. When the Lord turns the water to blood, The Egyptians cannot come along and change it back. Now that would be something. But they couldn't. All they can do is turn more water into blood. That's a great help. Uh, For the Egyptians desperate for water. All their magicians can do is produce more blood. Same with the frogs. Frogs all over the place. They're tripping over them literally. The Egyptian magicians come. Can they get rid of them? No. All they can do is produce more frogs, like Egypt was short of frogs at that stage. But that's significant. They cannot reverse what God does. If they're permitted to duplicate it, that's all they can do. They can only make things worse, actually. Not improve it. If you were an Egyptian, you would not be all that grateful to your magicians As far as the first two plagues were concerned, they just make it worse. And perhaps thankfully you'd feel, well, at least after that, they can't make it worse. They can't do anything. They're helpless. And so God clearly is in control. And God says, verse 17, we quoted earlier, by this you will know that I am the Lord. And at every point in the record, he shows he is the Lord. He decides where the battle will be fought. What is the issue? He sets the limits on what his opponents can do. They can go so far, no further. 
And though they may be permitted to make things worse, they cannot reverse what the Lord has done. And so it is a complete victory. And after the first two plagues, the Egyptian magicians are helpless, as their gods always were. And God demonstrates he is the Lord. He is God. He rules in Egypt. And Pharaoh is of no significance in the end. And he can harden his heart as much as he likes. But he won't frustrate the Lord's purpose. The Egyptians will be left without excuse if they do not submit to the Lord. And most of them don't. As sinners always are left without excuse in the face of God's works. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 1.20. You look at the creation. You look at God's handiwork. And you've no excuse. The Egyptians didn't. No sinner has an excuse before God. He shows his power. He shows his sovereignty. He shows his control. But only grace can soften the heart. And only grace can bring salvation. God will save his people Israel. God will deliver them graciously. And the Egyptians will stumble on in darkness and lostness as the Lord wins a complete victory. God hasn't changed What we learn of him here in Exodus 7, he is the same God. And he is glorified in his works. He delivers his people. And he leaves sinners without any excuse. And all the glory is to his name.